Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And we have in our New York studio our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And calling in from the coast, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. We're missing Mike Hogan today. He's uh, still taking uh, time for a victory lap from his uh, Oscars red carpet hosting gig. But we have a lot to talk about. Joanna, you are freshly returned from South by Southwest, where uh, I understand you did more than just eat queso, which I think is probably what I would do in your situation. I mostly just ate queso. But yeah, I flew, I landed seven hours ago here in in the Ah. Bay Area, and here I am. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Your level of commitment is uh, excellent. So we're going to catch up on South by Southwest and a couple of uh, new releases as we take a little bit of a break from strict awards talk as we move into the rest of the year. But there might actually be some awards talk to be done from South by. Joanna, before we started recording, it sounded like you knew like the one true runaway hit of South by. Like some years you don't really know what to talk about, but this year there was something everyone was talking about, right? It's a runaway hit in that I think it's a big narrative changer for the movie, and that's the comedy Blockers, directed by Kay Cannon with Ike Barinholtz. Leslie Mann, John Cena, and then a whole cast of of really talented young sort of newcomers. You know, this is a big Universal, like from Universal Studio comedy, and they they premiere a lot of Universal Studio comedy films at these festivals. They have a big relationship with South by, so that's where I saw Trainwreck premiere, Spy premiere, Bridesmaids premiered there, Neighbors premiered there, like you know all all of that. But I think there hadn't been. A lot of good buzz on blockers because I mean I'm gonna throw some marketing teams under the bus. I think Universal is wildly mismarketing this, and I know a bunch of people in LA who told me they went to they had a, an advanced screening this week in LA, and they told me they only went because of like my what I said or what other people were saying out of South by. Otherwise, they would have skipped it because the trailer looked so bad to them. And so this is a this is a movie that has gone through many many permutations. I think the original. Sc- script was called Three Cherries and the original script had Ugh. yeah exactly and the original script had three dads trying to prevent their daughters from losing their virginity on prom night that's the premise of the movie three parents are sort of trying to track down their daughters who have made a pact to lose their virginity american pie style sort of on prom night and the premise alone just sounds super regressive so i understand why people wouldn't want to see it but it's it's actually a really really well done hilarious progressive comedy and that has a lot of really interesting to say things to say about and for young women but it's being marketed as this sort of like gross out sex comedy and i know i know that it's which it is also kind of and i know that it 
yeah, it, it has like, I think there's like nine credited screenwriters on this. Like it, the script just went through wow. a lot of work to get and here. And it's directed and written by Kay Cannon, who wrote Pitch Perfect and has kind of made her career as a comedy writer. She doesn't have an official screenwriting credit on this, but I imagine that she definitely did some work on it. That's interesting. It's actually like nine dudes who have a credit on this. But yeah, but Kay directed it and I was deeply impressed by her. She got up and talked to the premiere. The premiere was gangbusters. Bigger reaction in that room for that comedy than for Trainwreck or Spy or any of these other comedies that I've seen in that room, which is always really amped up. It's an opening night movie. It's the big theater. All the stars are there. You know, John Cena's there and he's going to beat you up if you don't laugh at his jokes, like stuff like that. But people were laughing so loud. They were laughing like over the next line. Like I'm going to have to see this movie again so I can hear all of the dialogue. Yeah. And, and I'm really excited for it. I'm excited that that South by has the power. It's not seen as, as hugely muscular uh, in some ways in, in the film world because it comes right after the Oscars. I talked to someone at the a festival for a piece we're doing who called it the palate cleanser of the Oscars. But it does sometimes have the power to change narratives on these big films, these big opening night films, and also sustain some buzz that comes out of Sundance um, on other smaller films. Well, I was curious about the buzz factor because we talked uh, at Sundance a couple months ago about how things that are really buzzy at Sundance can sometimes completely fall apart uh, when you hit the mainland. But it does seem like South by is a little bit different because these things skew mainstream already. Like, is Sundance or is South by Buzz reliable to you for movies like Blockers? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, there was for better or for worse, what happened to that movie, but Disaster Artist sustained a lot of buzz out of South By last year all the way to an Oscar nomination, you know. Wow, I forgot it was at South By. Yeah, it was an, it was a work in progress premiere at South By. Baby Driver was a buzzy premiere. Not everyone, like Atomic Blonde had a lot of buzz out of, of South By. I loved it. And then it sort of, that sort of fell on its face a little bit when it premiered, which I think is a shame. But yeah, so not every single thing that goes over like Gangbusters in the Paramount Theater. You, if you're in the Paramount Theater, and, and this is true of any festival, but the Paramount Theater at South by even more so probably because sort of like it's pitching to fans. So they're going to be even more in the tank for a movie than your average festival goer, I think. So we can talk about Ready Player One if you want to, but you know, stuff like uh, Fury 7 being a secret screening, like these are people just like ecstatic to eat some popcorn and drink some Shiner and watch a movie. Like Steven Spielberg said this thing before Ready Player One where he's like, this is a movie, not a film. And I didn't really like that, but like this is a movie experience a lot of the times. These, These universal comedies, these big action films in the Paramount Theater. It's really fun, for sure. Richard, what have you heard about from South By that you're curious about? Well, I heard good things about Blockers, and then there were, there were screenings in LA and New York yeah, earlier this week, and like you said, Joanna, people, you know, all of a sudden were like, oh, we got to go see that. Uh, I didn't because you'd already covered it, but I'll see it later. I'm excited. But one title that kind of, well, two actually, that I was curious about, Joanna, I don't know if you saw either, but one was Galveston, the Melanie Laurent film based on a Nick Pizzolatto novel. Right. Uh, that had Ben Foster and Elle Fanning, I believe. I heard good things about that, which is intriguing for two reasons. One, because Melanie Laurent, who most people know as an actress in Beginners or uh, Inglorious Bastards, this is, her, I think, her third film, but her first English-language film. So that's interesting to see her, you know, sticking and sort of developing uh, as a director. And then with Pizzolatto, who, you know... I feel like True Detective yeah. season two maybe has some fans, but like for the most part, like he's on a redemption kind of path right now. So that a hit festival movie or or at least a well-regarded festival movie could be big for him. What did you hear about that one, Joanna? I heard complimentary things for Melina Laurent, for Ben Foster. Elle Fanning didn't come up too much, but uh, a lot of praise for those two. And then I heard what you heard, Richard, 
from some of our critic friends, for some of my friends who are there who aren't like big name critics, they felt a lot of fatigue, I think, around the violence in that movie. But that was a very like violence heavy day at the Paramount Theater. So I think, because uh, there was another film, uh, A Vigilante, starring Olivia Wilde, that was just a really hard sit that was also that day. And so I think it's possible that the violence of it, I, I heard no complimentary things from Nick Pizzolatto or the storytelling. In fact, the like the contrary. So I think it was like melancholy. Melanie Laurent did something somewhat interesting with a story that people didn't really like. And there's a good Ben Foster performance in it, which when is there ever not a good Ben Foster performance? Especially in stories that people don't really like. Ben Foster usually showing up being in something insane that is overwhelming, but he's good in it. Right, right, right. Another interesting programming thing, and I sorry, I want to get to your other movie, Richard, but the the other interesting programming thing, the night that Blockers premiered, you know, at the Paramount, there were four films that day. I saw, I think, three of them. Um, and just by coincidence, not by intention, all four films had been directed by a woman. And I think it was something like 80% of the films in competition were directed by women at South by this year. Yeah, this was a big thing. I went to this like top secret, not top secret, but press doesn't usually get invited to filmmakers luncheon that kicked off the festival. It's just filmmakers. You're allowed like one plus one. So maybe you bring a producer or something like that. There are no agents, no press except for uh, silly old me. And, um, and so it's just like filmmakers meeting other filmmakers. Robert Rodriguez there and Richard Linklater's there. And they give like this big speech about like, like, welcome to Austin. This is what we do here. Jordan Horowitz was there because he, uh, he and his wife wrote this great film, Fast Color, that was at the festival. It's more higher profile filmmakers meeting like the random midnighter documentary short director from who drove here from Toronto overnight to get there. You know, they're all in this room. It's all very egalitarian. They're all eating Franklin's barbecue is the best barbecue in the city. And it's a way for connections to form. And it's just, and I was overwhelmed by how many women were in that luncheon. Like there were so many female directors directors at South by this year. I was just really touched to see, you know, like Ricky Lake talking to these, like these, these women from New Zealand uh, who directed this film, Breaker Uppers, like just these connections being formed in this very low key, but important. We talk, we talked, Katie, you and I about the, the Oscar luncheon and the powerful connections that happened in that room. This felt like another one of those because it's in the middle of the day. People aren't drunk because it's like in the middle of the day. It's not a, it's not a party. There's no status. It's just like, oh, you have a story to tell. I have a story to tell. Let's talk about our stories. It's just really, it was in, uh, something I've never seen the like of uh, in in the industry that we cover. I like that at South by you feel the need to point out an event at which people weren't drunk, as, implying that there are plenty <laughs> well, at which people are. No, I just mean like, if, if you have a party lit at night, you know, like it becomes like a party party, but this is like, you know, sure. a luncheon. So, and sorry, Richard, what was the other movie you were, qu- you were curious about? Oh, um, Andrew Bujalski, who is kind of one of the, I don't know, grandfathers of Mumble Core, a filmmaker from Boston, actually. His first film is set right where I, uh, near where I grew up. Anyway, he has a movie called uh, Support the Girls with Regina Hall about a kind of Hooters-esque restaurant yeah. and they're fighting against their boss. And what did you hear about that? Because I, I kind of searched Twitter and it seemed like people liked it, but it maybe wasn't one of the buzzier movies there, but I'm really excited about it because I like his films. I saw it. I also, I saw like Funny Ha Ha, right? Was that his first yeah, film? That's yeah, yeah. In, yeah. I saw Support the Girls. I really liked it. I saw it on the recommendation of Rolling Stone's Dave Fear, who ran it to me on the street. This is a, this is how the best festival things happen, right? He runs it to me in the street in the middle of the night. He's like, gotta see Support the Girls. He's doing this sort of like Jonathan Demi sort of thing. You got to go see it. I was like, okay. And there was a random. That sounds so much like David Fierro's good impression. 
there was a random screening that I could make. And so Neil Miller, Film School Rejects, and I sort of moseyed on over. It wasn't like a full, it was a smaller venue, not a full screening, but Regina Hall is just great in it. And James LeGros is in it. He's great in everything, like Ben Foster. And it's a very, it's a very rambling story and very naturalistic. I really loved it. it. It's like, it's kind of formless. I don't know if it'll work for like a home viewing, but so I recommend seeing it in the theater, but it's, it's just like a really interesting, it's not even character vignettes, but it's sort of like characters wander in and out of it. And um, yeah, I like it a lot. I, I hope you get a chance to see it soon, Richard. We could talk about it. She's so good in Girls Trip. And obviously Tiffany Haddish got the, the lion's share of the attention and praise for that. And, and, you know, deservedly so. It's a big breakout performance. But Regina Hall is just so consistently good and watchable in that movie and in and, and so many movies and TV shows. So, yeah, it was just, it's just cool that she's working with this respected kind of oddball indie director in this kind of in this interesting sounding piece. So what was interesting about her performance is she's so um, in Girls Trip, she's so polished, right? She's the like posh, has everything together friend of the group. In this, she's the manager of this, like, it's not even Hooters. It's like the local, the local rundown version of Hooters. She wears like, a sen- you know, a polo shirt and like sensible sneakers to the whole movie. She's just running around trying to help everyone. And it's just a deeply unglamorous performance. She's surrounded by these like gorgeous women in super revealing costumes. And she's just like, she's of course gorgeous, but like sort of deglammed. I just really loved her in that. And I, I agree after seeing her in Girls Trip and this, I just really want to see her do literally anything. I wanted to ask Joanna about a couple of the Sundance movies that made their way to South by. This happens every year that you see things kind of continue to build on buzz, but it felt like blind spotting, especially, which I think was the opening night film at Sundance this year. It's uh, with David Diggs really took off at South by like it didn't totally get the same response at Sundance. Did you get that sense there too? Yeah, another another Oakland film. Uh, Oakland's having a year. From what I gather, maybe you guys will disagree with me, but my perception of David Diggs post Hamilton career is like not everyone knows what to do with him, you know, like on Kimmy Schmidt or Blackish or these, you know, he'll show up and people are like, I don't know what to do with you, David Diggs. You're so interesting, but like, what do I do with you? He was in an elaborate phone commercial, I think. That also, that was the strangest one that I saw. <laughs> but yeah, the people, I didn't get to see Blind Spotting. The people, my friends who saw Blind Spotting, far and away their favorite film in the festival, blew them away. They loved it so much. Um, and they were like, yeah, someone finally got what to do with David. They, they were just, you know, Ready Player One for all. It's like crazy hype that happened around the festival. Blind Spotting is the one that really, really landed with my friends who saw it. So I was mad at myself for not making it. But the one you saw was American Animals as a Sundance holder. Oh my God. I loved American Animals. Here's here's my like guilty confession that you can make fun of me for is that I never saw um, The Imposter, which is the director Bart Layton directed American Animals and he directed The Imposter, which came out what, like 2000. 13, so 2012. The Imposter was this, <laughs> and I watched it since. I did watch The Imposter at South By. Please don't be mad at me for not watching a South By movie at South By. But it was a 2012 blend of documentary and sort of dramatic, almost like dr- dramatic reenactment. This is what The Imposter was. Bart Layton took that concept and with a higher budget made this story, uh, this true story of this heist where these four college age young men tried to boost some rare books from a university in Kentucky. And you've got uh, Evan Peters, Barry Keown. Is that how you pronounce his name? Oh, uh, George from Dunkirk. Yeah, George from Dunkirk. Ty Sheridan's doppelganger. And Blake Jenner. 
uh, and a fourth kid who's Canadian who I don't know. It, it was just like deeply entertaining, but also I didn't know. I tried to do this at South by not know too much about the promise. I didn't know that this is what Bart Layton does is blend a documentary. So he has the real life guys who did a lot of prison time for this, and they are out and they are in the document. They're in giving like their point of view, and it. It's really impressive, the cut back and forth, because they're really telegenic, these four grown versions of these boys. And so I was like, are these other actors playing older versions of? And I was like, no, those are the real subjects. The blend of reality and fantasy, the way in which these four boys sort of fall into the fantasy of their heist, the way in which the documentary is sort of like heavily used and then lightly used, is just really smart entertaining and and profoundly moving i found so and you know evan peters i think is just so deeply talented i wish sometimes that he would break out of the american horror story cycle because i just want to see him do more than you know just play quicksilver an x-men movie and this is a really 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 good uh showcase for him and barry keown is also a fantastic barry keown's sort of the the protagonist and then evan peters is like the tyler durden to his edward norton I was blown away by it. I really, really loved it. American Animals. Richard, did you see that one in Sundance? I did. And I was not as effusive as Adriana. Um, I think that, well, I mean, I guess that Blind Spotting was at South by Two, but, you know, at Sundance, I saw Blind Spotting and then another movie called Monsters and Men. So I saw these two movies about the way that, well, partly about the way that um, police, largely white police forces, treat young men of color. And then to watch American Animals, where these four idiot white boys just, you know, I mean, they, they did go to prison. They were incarcerated for it. But then they got out. They were safe. They're alive. And they had a movie made about them. Uh, it just, mm. the, the inequity was a little bit stark in a way that, like, if I had seen American Animals separate of all that, I would probably would have appreciated it more as, like, cute boy Fargo. Or not not Fargo, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, cute boy heist gone wrong. Cute boy Cohen movie. Yeah. Cohen Brothers movie. Exactly. Yeah, it, is, it is very coney. And it, it, that's a really good point that you make. I think the there is a question about that, the way in which we have those questions around Wolf of Wall Street is like, is this movie treatment glamorizing these four, like, idiots? That being said, there's such idiots in their fictional version, and then their their real-life versions are so thoughtful and reflective that it sort of – it it cooled that reaction to me. Like, I, I felt like the movie really did show how heavily this decision, this life-ruining decision, but maybe not life-ruining, as Richard's point, um, sat with with these four men. But and, – and Richard is probably right that if I had seen it in that other context, I might have – I might have been a little a little bit more burnt on it. The other – film that I should mention of Sundance that people were dying to see and really ecstatic about was Hereditary. The funny story, the funny scheduling story about Hereditary is that it was scheduled as a midnight screening at South by and they had a TBA, a big, big old TBA slot on Sunday night at the 930 slot. And that ended up being Ready Player One, which ended up being, I believe the running time is two and a half hours, which is longer, longer than the festival was told it was. And they didn't know until like the last minute that they were definitely getting Ready Player One. So they slotted Ready Player One into that that spot, which they were holding for it. But then it sort of bled into later in the night. And they knew how many people really wanted to see Hereditary and a couple other Midnighters that were screening that night. So they had to push all the Midnighters back. So I had... To start at like 1 a.m.? <laughs> I think it was like 12.30. So I had the whole row that I was sitting with 
ran out of Ready Player One to get on their shuttle and go see Hereditary. Um, I was not so brave, and uh, there were nothing but but raves about that. So that just continued the the Sundance hype around Hereditary. I don't want to talk about Ready Player One too much since it's coming out in two weeks, and I think we'll have time to talk about it then. I will note that at two and a half hours, it is as long as Lincoln, which is not exactly what I was expecting. Joanna, just briefly, like you were there, you heard the reaction in the room. I think you had maybe a, a slightly less enthusiastic reaction than some other people in the room. Uh, what should we be bracing for in the weeks ahead for Ready Player One? It feels like we're going to be fighting about it a lot. And tell us about the uh, the sound mistake thing. Oh, yeah. I guess this is a spoiler alert for our own content, but I, I was able to talk to the festival director, Janet Pearson, after that all happened. And uh, so what happened is like, I was like, I don't know, two hours into the movie, I think, there's this big, huge explosion, and then the sound blew. And then they rewound the film, you know, and everyone's big like, Big, huge oh. explosion on screen. Like sorry, the sound sorry, yes. Uh, big, okay, okay. Let me, let <laughs> Everyone's me, okay. Let me, Weirdly unreported terrorist attack. <laughs> yeah. <at Southwest. laughs> let me explain this. Uh, a huge explosion on screen, and I actually thought, I, I got really mad because I thought Spielberg was like ripping off Doing the, left, the Last Jedi. Jedi. Yeah, yeah. So it's this huge explosion, then silence. And I was like, well, it's stunning, but I just saw it in The Last Jedi, so I don't like this. And then it became clear that the sound had blown. And so uh, thankfully, because it was a digital copy and not like a film where you had to go back a whole reel, which I've experienced before, they were able to sort of scrub back, start again, and then it happened again. It blew at the exact same time. What was remarkable about the room is that they did not lose the room at all. Everyone was just cheering. The second time that they did that, like it goes from an explosion to sort of like this war charging scene. And everyone was sort of like in the room started making the like pew pew noises. Like they were, everyone was just like having a good time. No one was mad. It didn't take that long for all of this to go down. A lot of people like pulled out their phone and started tweeting. I just felt really bad for like the festival and Janet because like I know how hard they worked to get that movie there. So for there to be a technical difficulty, like I didn't know whether or not Steven Spielberg was a diva. He wasn't. But like I didn't know if he was going to be like, never again. South by Southwest. Then they start tried it one more time and it worked. And what Janet told me later is that the speakers, she she believes the speakers were just turned up too loud. They did an audio test earlier in the day. It was fine. But th- that they had turned up the speakers too loudly. So it just like blew at that loud explosion sound. I don't know how speakers work. Uh, what do I know? Anyway, um, I heard stories from people, from programmers who were all around the town uh, and their phones just started going like bananas crazy because, uh, you know, this was happening. But it, like I said, it didn't lose the room. And I think as long as you don't lose the room, you know, Ty Sheridan sort of joked, Ty Sheridan, who's the star of Ready Player One, joked later during the Q&A. He's like, I thought it sort of ramped up expectations. And I actually think that's kind of true, not just a face-saving thing to say. Also, what's true is that Steven Spielberg wasn't planning to come out. He he introed the movie, but he wasn't planning to come out on the stage to do the Q&A. But he did come out because of that technical difficulty. He came out because he felt like he had to. So, you know, Austin got a Steven Spielberg Q&A they weren't going to get because of this, like, slight technical glitch. So... The room was all in on Ready Player One. And yeah, we will talk about it a little bit more because um, I went in, um, I think, predisposed, probably predisposed not to like it, though trying to get rid of this predisposition. I know Richard uh, has a much kindlier predisposition for this movie. And and so that's going to be a fun conversation to have, I think. So uh, I see the ways in which this movie isn't for me. And I see the ways in which the movie is for a, like 99% of the people who are in that room. That being said, a lot of the women that I know, a lot of the female film critics I know who are in that room, especially sort of had a negative reaction to some of the messaging of the film. And so I, I do work 
worry that we're going to, not that the film treats its female characters poorly. It, it doesn't really. It just, it is a love letter to the straight white fanboy. And that community has, in certain corners, has become so toxic that it can be a little difficult. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this when I was writing my review. And and really, you're right, we, we should save the larger conversation for later. But Ernie Klein, who's an Austin native, which is probably why South by Got Ready, part of the reason why South by Got Ready Player One, he wrote his book before Gamergate. And so I, I just really think that it's like an uninterrogated look at this idea that like, if you know the most about pop culture knowledge, you are the ultimate gatekeeper of fandoms or, or whatever it is. And, and, and that's something that the film tr- tries a little bit, but not too hard to interrogate. And I wish it had done a little bit more. And I'm just a little worried because I tweeted a little bit about the movie when I got out of it. And I was not even saying negative things. And I already got people being really angry about my like sort of caution tepid reaction on Twitter. So I imagine there there will be fights about this movie. But like, I'm kind of wondering why? Why do we need to fight about it? Like, if people enjoy it, enjoy it. That's fine. And and if it's not for me, that should also be fine. That's all I think about that movie. I feel like we didn't appreciate enough with Black Panther how it was a superhero movie that people like were mostly just excited about. We didn't get like the critics versus fan battles that usually happen with superhero movies. So uh, we didn't escape it for long. Sounds like it's back for with, with Ready Player One. But I really am excited to hear what Richard thinks because, uh, you know, not just because he can hear me right now. Richard's so smart and um, and thoughtful. And if he really, really likes the movie, I want to hear him talk about that. No pressure, Richard. Yeah, I mean, I in absolutely no way ever want those fanboys to get a movie made for them and celebrating them, to be perfectly honest. But I still think it's a Spielberg movie. And I maybe read it without that context and enjoyed the book. So I don't know. We'll see. I fully like am on the side of women being like, I don't want this movie because or 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 whatever or finding problem in the people celebrated by the movie. But I'm hoping that otherwise it will be fun. So now to pivot from festivals of uh, movies that you can see soon to movies that you can see really soon, like this week. Richard, you reviewed Love, Simon this week, which there's been buzz building for it because they started screening it for critics really early, which is not necessarily what you expect for kind of a a spring teen movie. And I think they were expecting to get some good buzz around it. And your review was both positive and really complicated, which I thought was interesting. As a general rule, I think you are recommending Love, Simon, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, finally a movie for the gay fanboys. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I am fully recommending it. I mean, because if for a variety of reasons, uh, but maybe chief among them, that this is a studio film. It's from Fox. $17 million budget, which is pretty big for a gay movie, you know, that's being wide released. And it's the first ever studio film about, you know, a gay teenager coming out. So, yeah, we should throw money at this thing and and, and hopefully they'll, they'll make more like it or more just gay films in general, queer stuff. But also, it's not it's not high art. But it's a really charming movie with good performances. Jennifer Garner is great in it. It has much to recommend it. But yeah, there is that political angle to it that I think is perhaps the most important one. Does it also feel a little overblown to you? Like part of me wonders if we are, you know, putting so much on this little nice movie of being, you know, I think you tweeted an ad that said it was groundbreaking on like so many different levels and maybe it's not quite as earth shattering as we're making it out to be. Well, look, I mean, it's about a very attractive very straight presenting white kid from a upper middle class family. He's he's nervous to come out because of how it'll change. But beyond that, 
you know, he, he, there's a line towards the beginning of the movie uh, that's, I think, taken directly from the book that the movie is based on, where he's like, I'm just like you. And it's like, well, there are actually a myri- myriad ways you're not <laughs> just like a lot of people. Uh, but okay. You know, and Greg Berlanti, who directed it, is a wealthy gay guy who's been out in Hollywood for a long time. And I think that the movie maybe lacks some perspective, maybe, on the current moment. But oddly, in a way, it's sort of traditional, you know, Nancy Meyers home decor kind of upscale trappings, let's say, feel in their own way exciting because like we never get that with st- stuff about gay people, you know, um, or, or, or with, with gay people in the lead role, certainly, that, that we ha- can have a formulaic sort of traditional, you know, square kind of predictable romantic comedy, but about a gay teenager, like that's pretty cool. So I, in a weird way, all of the, the movies kind of basic familiar stuff works to its advantage oddly it kind of makes me think of the way that i react as a teenager to any movies of like with female characters who were like marked in any way as unusual which i think as teenagers everyone thinks that that they're they're that way like you think about the way in pretty in pink like molly ringwald is like supposed to be kind of an outsider even though she's obviously gorgeous in molly ringwald or like i think of the lauren ambrose character in can't hardly wait like there is a hollywoodized version of showing teenagers themselves on screen that like you can latch on to no matter what and it does feel like love simon is following in that tradition because there's you know there's been gay characters in teen movies but not as you said as central to a story and kind of like allowed to have a romance which is the the way that movies are so retrograde that uh tv definitely isn't anymore i i really am not trying to make everything about south by but that's another thing about blockers is there's like i didn't know this but there's a gay love story in a major sex studio comedy that like does not shy away from that at all um i don't know that we can call it the first because love simon is like coming out first but but after having i imagine watching love simon watching blockers which will come out you know soon as well after having watched so many studio films shy away from or or we've talked about this like the marvel movies or the disney movies filming and then cutting same sex or at least bisexual sort of storylines from their films from black panther from thor ragnarok to watch universal and fox just be like unafraid to do it and just be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> this is normal. This is fine. I mean, I know that Love, Simon, both Love, Simon and, and the storyline and blockers are about like someone who's nervous to be, have, you know, embrace this part of their identity or, or this, ident- their identity. But like, so it's not like, oh, it's nothing, but it's, but it's, there's no, I hope uh, in Love, Simon as well. No, like, ew, gross or, or whatever around it. It's just sort of like, this is a human love, you know, love is love uh, sort of thing. Yes. I mean, it is, there, there isn't a lot of that. There's not a lot of flinching, let's say, when the inevitable kiss with the love interest happens, they actually, it's, I was expecting a little peck. It's more than that. There are several kisses, in fact. So that's, you know, that that's progress in its own right. There's one sequence in Love, Simon that does bother me where he's imagining himself out in college and it's kind of this like comedic dance scene thing. And it's cute because Nick Robinson, who plays Simon, is just a terrible dancer. But at the end of this scene in voiceover, Simon says, well, maybe not that gay. And it's like, well, it really wasn't mm. very, you know, like, so there's stuff like that where the movie is still rooted in 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 perhaps more traditional vernacular about this stuff but like 
you know, again, it's it's progress. We have to, you know, studio films are different than independent films. The sort of bars to entry are different, and and maybe that's not that's not great. And we hopefully we can work to change that system. People can work to change it. But for the time being, I mean, I was dreading Love Simon. I thought it was going to be regressive and really disappointing, and was very pleasantly surprised. You know, it's not perfect, and I think that something pertinent to me, maybe, but maybe not everyone, but like certainly not the teenagers for whom the movie is is made and marketed to. But you know, watching it in the the wake of Common by Your Name and God's Own Country and very many many other movies in the LGBT world that I've seen, I have felt a little fatigue for constantly feeling like every gay narrative on film and a lot in television a lot of the time too is a coming out narrative. So I feel like I'm just spending so much time dwelling in my teen years, remembering, wishing things had been different, wishing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just like after Will have Simon, which I did like a few hours later, I was like, man, I just really want to see something like about gay adults or gay old people or like, you know, et cetera, because I just think we spend so much time because it's a very formative experience, obviously, but there are more experiences beyond it. And I hope that, you know, Love, Simon does really well. So we get some of those studio movies, too. I remember you writing this thing, Richard, about um, the HBO series Looking. When when Looking was airing, my sense just actually from reading your coverage of it was that there was a number of people in the gay community who were like, this isn't good enough. Like this this depiction of gayness is not good enough in XYZ ways. And then, you know, the show sort of... Uh, was canceled because people people were angry about it or, or in, uninterested or not watching whatever it was, and I remember your frustration because you're like, but it's it's all we had, so could we not have supported this show in the hopes that its popularity would open the door for other things? And that that would be my hope for something like this for Love Simon or or the storyline and blockers or whatever else we're talking about, which is like, yeah, it is. It's like white middle class characters that's what these studios feel safe teens coming out that's what studios feels like safe story to tell right now but the way in which that story can open the door for these other stories and representations we'd like to see it would be great to support those stories not that you're not or not that anyone isn't but like just generally support the stories that can open the door for for wider representation for like something like you know moonlight which wins back picture but to have like you know a story of you know an impoverished non-white kid trying to figure out grapple with sexuality like can that move into the more the studio fronted fair like stuff like that but but and maybe this is makes me sound regressive but i think we do need these love simons and these lockers to turn up the heat slowly on that boiling lobster pot so that we get to uh the wider range of stories that we want to see told yeah for sure and i without i'm not going to spoil anything but in in terms of love simon's optics i mean and demographics and, and diversity it is in there there is diversity in the movie and in particularly one surprising way which is great you know so the movie is trying i think that the sort of energy behind the movie from the studio and and, and other people kind of peripheral to that has been a little bit Hard charging in that they're not really brooking a lot of criticism in my sort of anecdotal experience, which I understand why, but I think that I'll just be very curious to see what people say after they see it this weekend. I think that there will be some negative takes, probably some positive ones. But an acquaintance of mine who partly runs the New Fest, which is a, a gay film festival here in New York, he took the film to a few high schools in the New York area, I think yesterday, and screened it um, for various GSAs, Gay Straight Alliances, and other student groups. And he said the kids just went nuts for it. So 
um, that is really encouraging. You know what I hope happens, and uh, this might be straight watching a movie I haven't even seen, but the way that The Fault in Our Stars kind of gave us this mini boom of like weeby teen movies that's still going mm-hmm. on. Like if we get a mini boom of just like teen rom-coms of like whatever sexuality or gender or whatever, like I'm just, I'm ready for rom-coms to come back. And, you know, if the kids are going to go see movies, studios want kids to see their movies. So if that can happen, I'll be thrilled. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I literally was just saying that I'm sick of or, or fatigued by teen stories, but no, bring it on. Like I'm, we're 20 years past the scream teen horror reboot, you know, kind of renaissance. So like maybe, maybe it's time for, for that. Like I would take a she's all that remake at this point. Like I think sure. there's actually, there's obviously plenty of ways to make that story fine for current day. So uh, someone someone get on that. Or actually, I want to go back to your uh, cute boy Cohen's uh, Richard. If you want to pitch that, that sounds pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I did. It was called Billionaire Boys Club, and then Kevin Spacey ruined it. <laughs> Can we get a Billionaire Boys Club reference into every week of the podcast? I'm going to try. Well, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, Thank you for sticking with us again in the post-Oscar season. We have so much to talk about still, so we appreciate you listening as always and finding us on Apple Podcasts where you can leave a review and rate us and help us find new listeners. Uh, We are all at VanityFair.com where you can find Joanna's South by Southwest coverage, Richard's Love Simon review, and so much other stuff. Uh, You can tweet at all of us at Little Gold Men or on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rye Laws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this and Mike Hogan is at Mike underscore Hogan gone but not forgotten yes exactly this episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth and this week's award for the best description of the gone but not forgotten Mike Hogan goes to Joanna Robinson he's the like posh has everything together friend of the group <laughs> <laughs>